Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists share their most recent work. This week, I had the pleasure of chatting with Shai Davidai, assistant professor in the management division of Columbia Business School. His research examines people's everyday judgments of themselves, other people, and society as a whole. He studies perceptions of inequality and competitive zero-sum beliefs about the world. Shai received his PhD from Cornell under Tom Gilovich's supervision. His work has been published in various top-tier journals. In this episode, we discuss how people pursue status. When do people seek status through dominant aggressive bullying? And when do they receive it due to their competence and good character? Shai's work reveals the role of zero-sum beliefs. People who believe one person's gain is another's loss choose more dominant strategies to gain status. Is this an adaptive response? Can such zero-sum perceptions be inaccurate and, even worse, self-fulfilling? What's the way out of such competitive zero-sum cultures? Shai shares how he stays optimistic despite such depressing research interests, discusses being an international scholar living in the US, and gives advice to his younger grad student self. He finally poses a puzzle for the listener. Would you rather be extremely smart or extremely kind? Hope you enjoy our conversation. Today on the Stanford Psychology Podcast, I am so excited to be talking with Shai Davidai about status and different ways people try to get status and get ahead in life and some juicy, grim, dystopian stuff like that. But before we get there, thanks for making the time. Well, thank you for having me. I'm talking about dystopia. I, I never looked at my work as dystopian, so now I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right. Let's, let's start with the basics and talk about what is status and does everyone want to have status in life? Oh, man, you really hit the nail on the head. Um, so I'll start with the easier one. Does everyone want to have status? To a certain degree, yes. Our status in society, our status in our organizations, our status in our friend groups, All of those situations, our status determines a lot of things that we care about. It determines how well we perform. It determines our, our mental well-being. It determines our physical well-being. And when I say determine, I should say mostly correlational, but we have strong reason to believe by the vast literature that there is a causal link there. The more complicated question is, what is status? And I think when you ask lay people what is status, they have no problem saying what status is. It's like, it's, it's a non-question, right? Like if you go to a party with non-academics, we'll just say, yeah, you know, this person has high status, this person has low status. When you try to publish in a psychology journal something about status, that's when you realize that there's a lot of different definitions, a lot of different ways of thinking about status. Um, you can think about status as socioeconomic status, so your relative economic uh, abilities. You can think about status as some measure of your power over other people. You can think about it as popularity. For the sake of our work, and I should say status is not my 
main focus of my of my research. But for the sake of our our work, we've looked at social status as the social rank that people have and in their abilities to influence others, but not directly through telling them what to do, but more in convincing them what to do. Okay, so some people have more status than others. This begs the question, why? And there are different strategies people can use to gain status. One is called dominance and one is called prestige. What are those? Yeah, and I should say, when I talk about this, that uh, at least 50% of the work and my thinking about this has been inspired and done by Patricia andrews Fearing, uh, who, by the way, is a postdoc now at Stanford. And she's been amazing, and, and our conversations have been amazing in, in informing the way I think about status, the way uh, I understand it now. And, and basically, when we started working on this project, which maybe we'll explain in a second what this project is, uh, but I, I was exposed to this very recent and interesting and influential theory about how people gain status, which is the dual mode for, for status acquisition. And, and it suggests that there's two ways to gain status, right? One is through dominance behaviors, right? Basically, I want status. I'm going to use everything that I can to make you fear me, intimidate you. It's my way or the highway so that you bow down and give me status. Um, and you see a lot of that in the animal kingdom, right? Animals fight for uh, dominance over others and uh, the, the alpha male succeeds or the alpha female. But there's another way. And the other way is through prestige-oriented behaviors. And that way to gaining status is not so much about forcing others to give you status to, to put you high in the social hierarchy, but rather getting people to voluntarily bow to your expertise, right? So when we give people advice, when we help people around us, uh, when we make ourselves invaluable to others, our popularity, our standing in the social hierarchy increases. And interestingly, and this is something that I've learned while we were working on this project, you find evidence of prestige-oriented status-seeking in the animal kingdom as well. We don't talk about those as much as we do in, in, in the dominance-oriented, uh, but there is evidence that animals bow down not just to the strongest or the most forceful member of their group, but they also bow down to the ones that have some expertise, whatever that expertise is. So it's interesting that, you know, in general, we have these two ways of getting status. We can coerce servers, or we can hopefully get their voluntary deferral. Now, do we use one or the other? No, I mean, life is complicated. We typically use a mixture of both, right? We, everyone tries and to, or at least values prestige-oriented behaviors, and we all want to just be respected. But some of us, many of us, most of us, that's an open question, but we do pepper in dominant-oriented behaviors. And the question is, where do you put your focus? Well, that's maybe not as dystopian as I promised our listeners. <laughs> Turns out you can get ahead in society or in a certain group 
by being competent and a good person. And then other people give you status, not just by bullying your way to the top. Okay, that's good. Next question, obviously, is when do we pick one strategy or the other? And this is where your work comes in. Your work on what is called zero-sum beliefs. I promise this is the last question about definitions I am going to ask you. <laughs> But what are zero-sum beliefs and what do they have to do with all of this? Right. So zero-sum beliefs are the belief that we have that for one party to succeed, others have to fail. Or to put it differently, that one party's gains comes at another party's expense. Now, this could be in an intergroup relationship. So I believe that a, a group in society is trying to succeed and the only way for it to advance socially is to take away some rights or some advantages that other groups have. This could be in more broader groups like nationalities or countries. I believe that when one country gains from trade, another party inevitably has to lose. Or this could be in the very interpersonal relationships, right? That I believe that for myself to succeed, my colleague down the hall, you know, has to inevitably fail. Do I want them to fail? No. But my only way to succeed is to uh, to come at very expense. Now, obviously, I don't believe any of these things, but that's that's a characterization of what people who believe in Uh, have these zero-sum beliefs uh, expressed. Now, in this paper that I sent you and that was recently published in the, the Journal of Experimental Psychology General, we specifically studied zero-sum beliefs about status. So we apply this general belief that people have about how the world works, how social relationships or intergroup relationships work. And we applied it to people's beliefs about social status. So how do they think that you gain social status? Do you gain social status by either pulling people that are higher up, uh, pulling them down, or by keeping people that are beneath you, keeping them down, pushing them down? Or is there a way to gain social status in a non-zero-sum way such that you are able to succeed without necessarily compromising other people's standing. That's the definition. Now, what does this have all to do with dominance and prestige? That's exactly where we came in. You know, there, there's, there was all this research in the past 10, 15 years showing the effects, the, the, the consequences of pursuing status through dominance versus prestige. There's all this research on how effective it is to pursue status through dominance versus prestige. But there wasn't much research on what leads us to do to choose one or the other in the first place. And what we reasoned was that when you see status as a zero-sum game, where you see social hierarchies as this game where for me to move up, somebody else is going to be hurt, you're more likely to use dominance-oriented strategies than if you see status as a non-zero-sum game where, look, I can move up without affecting your standing. Okay, I believe the world is zero-sum and if I lose, someone else will win. If I win, someone else will lose. That leads me to be more aggressive and dominant. Why? Right, exactly. So basically what happens is that this zero-sum beliefs that we have about status, they shape not just how we behave, 
but also what we think is the normative behavior. When I walk into an organization thinking or believing that success in this organization is zero sum, then I immediately start seeing behaviors through those lenses. And that lens makes me think, well, if one, probably everyone believes like me, right? We have we know a lot about egocentric projections of attitudes. So probably everyone thinks like me that this is zero sum. Two, if everyone thinks that it's zero sum, then probably everyone is trying to dominate, right? Everyone is trying to keep me down or pull me down in order to succeed. And therefore, three, if everyone's doing this, I better get my act together and also do this, right? So we have this almost like a pluralistic ignorance situation where you have this belief that a situation is zero sum. So you believe that everyone else is going to be dominant and aggressive and hostile towards you. And then you don't see yourself as playing offense. You see yourself as playing defense. I'm just trying to level the playing field by also being dominant. Pluralistic ignorance, music to my ears, right? It's this phenomenon where you can have a group full of people and each individual in this group thinks something about the group that is not actually true. So the common example here is Greek life on campus and drinking on college campuses, right? There's this widespread perception that on college campuses, everyone is into Greek life, everyone wants to party all the time. Turns out way fewer people actually want to do this than we believe. But because we believe this is what everyone wants, we go to these parties, even though, even though we don't want to. And then it's this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. And I love the analogy here because we have psychologists and this is a psychology podcast, right? And so it's important to highlight how subjective all of these perceptions are. It's not that we objectively perceive the zero-sum reality that is out there in a workplace or in society, and then we objectively perceive what everyone else believes. But we have these subjective perceptions of, you know, what is society? Like society is such a big construct that it's really hard to have any objective measures of it. And yet we have these subjective beliefs. And so I wonder if you could speak to the subjective component and to this almost self-fulfilling aspect that is implied by this logic. Right. I mean, first I should say that there are some objective characteristics of the situations that we find ourselves in, which can affect our zero-sum beliefs, right? So if you put me in an organization that explicitly values me relative to um, my colleagues, right, and tells me, like, look, this is a winner-take-all society, right? This is a winner-take-all game, and it's either you or them, right? If you put me in a zero-sum situation, I will act as if it's a zero-sum situation, right? To me, that's less interesting, but it's true, and it has to be noted, right? Some situations in life, although there's an argument among researchers about how many, which ones, but some situations in life are inevitably going to be zero-sum. When we perceive them as such, we're going to act in that way. But again, like you mentioned, as a psychologist, and I am interested in people's subjective beliefs. And to me, the reason I even got interested in psychology is this idea that there's a world out there and then there's a world between my ears. And the world between my ears is not necessarily a, a clear reflection of the world that's out there. And if 
that's true. And we all have these subjective perceptions. And if all of our subjective perceptions are likely to be distorted in the same way, that can lead to these very interesting phenomena where even though the world is A, we all treat it as B, right? So like I mentioned, if you put me in a situation that's objectively zero sum, playing chess, you know, that's a zero sum game. Yes, uh, I will act as if it's zero sum. But what happens when you put me in a situation that's not zero sum? Or a situation where it's unclear if it's zero sum or not? Or a situation that has some zero sum components, but also many non zero sum components? And what I find in, in a lot of my research and what other people's have been, people have been finding in their research is that in many cases, people view a situation as zero sum even when it's not necessarily so. And their beliefs are the thing that really pushes and advances their behavior. That's disturbing, <laughs> but also exciting. You find that people who have a zero sum view of the context they are in are more, they use more dominant strategies, okay. But they are just as likely to use prestige-based strategies. They are not discounting those strategies. They are still using them. Did you expect this no effect? And what do you make of it? That's an interesting thing. When, when you say expect, we should be, uh, I should be very careful in how I say this. When we started talking, Patricia and I, we expected two things to occur. We expected that zero-sum beliefs will drive up the pursuit of dominance. And we expected it to drive down the pursuit of prestige. Then we ran a first kind of like pilot study just to see like, are we on the right track? Should we even spend our time and money on this? And we found that zero-sum beliefs did predict people's pursuit of dominance or desire for dominance, but had no effect on prestige. So we had to update our predictions and our expectations And that's where we landed on our current research, which is that zero-sum beliefs will affect dominance, but won't necessarily affect prestige. We're basically agnostic about its effect on prestige. Now, of course, you can't prove a null hypothesis, right? So I can't say that it doesn't decrease prestige, but we don't have evidence that it reduces it. We don't also have evidence that it increases it. We just, the, the, our, our evidentiary basis leads us to believe that there's a strong positive effect on dominance, but not on prestige, no effect on prestige. Now, like you mentioned, one thing that we find over and over again in our studies is a main effect, meaning people would rather gain status through prestige. And I leave it to other people to, to, to decide whether this is surprising or not. An optimist might say, that's not surprising, people are good. Pessimist might say, or a cynic might say, oh, wow, really? Like people care more about prestige? I would go into that conversation and say, everyone wants to be liked. Everybody wants to be liked for their expertise and their knowledge and their value. And how we differ from each other is in how much we're willing to use force when prestige doesn't work out. Right? When you even think about you know, the, the, the great totalitarian, and I say great not as in good, but great as in 
very salient totalitarian leaders uh, of the 20th century. They used force and dominance to rise in the hierarchy, but it's not like they didn't want to be liked by the people they controlled forcefully. It's just that they peppered quite a bit of dominance into their desire to also be liked. Yeah, psychopaths tend to also be narcissists. I guess that's a interesting charitable way of putting it. But here I am, ironically enough, defending a cynical interpretation of this, uh-huh. where maybe maybe there are people who really are using primarily dominance-based strategies. And I wonder if you also speculate on a reverse causality here, where dominance behavior leads to a zero-sum view of the world, right? Where the kinds of people who are very selfish and want to do something really selfish and self-enhancing and just aggressive in order to bully their way to the top, they might realize, okay, well, this is not going to fly unless I have a justification for this, or they might be pressed to explain what they do. And then they might invoke this zero-sum view, right, in addition to the other direction of causality that you propose, and say, well, it's just it is what it is. The world is a harsh place. Suck it up. This is life. You have to deal with it. Right. I, I think you're right. So there might also be some uh, bidirectionality going on, where we believe the world is in a certain way, so we act accordingly. And then to justify why we act, we strengthen our beliefs that the world is indeed in that way. The more disturbing version of what you just said is a paper that was recently published in the Journal of of Applied Psychology, where organizations that have dominant leaders, so where the leader, the CEO, the manager is a dominant kind of person, they tend to create a zero-sum culture within the subordinates of that leader. So it's not only that dominance might lead you to view things as zero-sum, but when you act in a dominant manner and you submit others to your dominance, then you might inadvertently lead them to believe that indeed status is zero-sum. I think this is a double-edged sword because not only does it harm you, or I believe that it can harm you, but it can also harm others, right? If you act dominantly and make me believe that, oh, wait, I guess Eric is so dominant, I guess things are zero-sum, then now I'm going to be dominant against you and actually fulfill your prophecy that things are indeed zero-sum and everyone is horrible. So we got some dystopian interpretations out of this after all. That makes me happy. But, and I, so I should say, because I am not a dystopian, uh, despite all the evidence in the world that might make me want to be dystopian, <laughs> uh, the virtuous cycle might also happen. Maybe if I act in you know very salient and prestige ways, I might be able to convince you that things are not yourself. So, you know, it, it's very easy to notice in the world very vicious cycles of negative behavior leading to negative behavior. We know that bad is stronger than good. We know it's more salient, but I still have hope that virtuous cycles are out there. In your studies, participants are almost forced to make a decision, use prestige or dominance in order to get status. In real life, it seems like there is at least one more option, which is just to disengage, (laughs) to run away from the group that you think is turning really zero-sum. The example I have in mind is how we describe politics 
as a place full of self-interested dominance, you know, pursuing aggressive individuals where I can envision the kind cooperative young individual looking at politics, the kind of person we really need in politics, look at it and say, well, this is not a place for me. I don't want to change what strategy I pursue to get status. I just don't want to engage with this at all. Do you think there's an effect of how zero-sum an environment is perceived to be and how much certain kinds of people want to engage and be part of this context in the first place? That is a very perfect and uh, prescient question. So uh, we have a paper that we're revising now where we, um, where we document the phenomena we call zero-sum aversion. So basically what we find is that people are averse or try to avoid situations that are zero-sum or that they believe are zero-sum. And we find this across many different situations, starting with negotiations. If people think a negotiation is zero-sum, they just don't want to enter it. We find it in economic games. We find it in work environments. So when we have the choice, I think you're absolutely right that most people will disengage and not enter the situation they perceive as zero sum. And the people that do feel comfortable to enter those situations are not necessarily the people that we would want to feel comfortable. The problem is that in many situations, we don't necessarily have a choice, right? You're a graduate student, and I assume you're in a cohort of three, four other graduate students. If all goes well, and I hope everything goes well, you will be going on the market in a couple of years with your friends. And you will have a choice. You will have a choice of whether to see the job market as zero sum, such that your friend across the hall, if they get a job, your chances just dropped. Or you could see the situation as not zero sum, such that If your friend down the hall gets a job, now people are excited about Stanford and your chances go up. Now, of course, in a hypothetical world, you could disengage and not go on the job market. But assuming that you will go on a market, that you will join some organizations in your life, a work organization, maybe some uh, after work club, whatever it is, it's going to be there. That decision of how to engage is going to be there. And while, yes, I believe in some situations in life, we have that choice to whether to disengage or not. And that's why we have this other strand of research. In many situations, we're basically thrown into the environment. We have some preconceived notions of what the environment is. And those preconceived notions affect how we interact in that environment. We talk about all these subjective construals of the zero-sum world because we are psychologists and this is just what we do. But assuming for a second, switching identity here, we are also people in everyday life. It seems like this is not something we think about on an everyday basis, right? How we have all this power to construe a situation in different ways. It's easy to forget about that. And when I think about people, and I'm curious about your opinion here, People who have a very strong zero-sum mindset, it seems like they are very sure that they are right in their perception of the world, right? This is what it is. It's a, it's a rough world out there. There's nothing you can do about it. And if you think it can change, you're just naive and gullible and an idiot. Get me a little bit more into the general mind of someone who has a very strong zero-sum mindset. How do they see the world? Zooming out from this paper, 
to your research more general? And are they, are they suffering with such a negative, cynical view of the world? So the first thing I would say is that if I take off my researcher mind for a second, put on my, my shy Davidai person in the world hat, right? I am constrained by my own views, right? I am a person who either strongly believes that things are not zero-sum, or when I do have a sense of zero-sum, I actively try to think, in what ways might this not be zero-sum, right? So it's hard for me to completely put myself in the minds of others that really see the world as zero-sum. That being said, every once in a while, I meet those students, right? I teach a negotiation course for MBA students, and some of them really see the world as a zero-sum game. Some of them because they have never questioned that belief. Some of them because they've been conditioned. Some of them because they might be preparing to work in industries that are more zero-sum than average. And I don't think they suffer. If anything, when we have these conversations, it's always collegial, it's always you know, trying to figure out, is it zero-sum, is it not zero-sum? And I think they look at me and say, oh, you're gullible, right? They they look at me and say, well, you know, someone's, I got to take someone's money, it might as well be my professor's money, <laughs> right? Uh, so I, I think that it's only phenomenologically negative to the extent that you have some epiphany that, oh, wait, I was wrong, and this is not zero-sum. But like I said, if you act as if it is zero-sum, you're very unlikely to be exposed to the misguided ways of your views. Unfortunately, if you act as if something is not zero-sum, and it is zero-sum, you will know, because you will be, you know, you will basically bring a... A uh, bouquet of flowers to a gunfight. So you will find out. But what we do in uh, our negotiation course uh, here at Columbia is two things, or at least this is what I try to do. One is I try to get my students to question themselves and their assumptions about whether any interaction, business or not business, is yours. Right? Just go in knowing that you have this uh, tendency to view things as zero-sum and question yourself. Try to think just for a few minutes, what is potential for mutual gains? And the second thing I try to do is to drill into them the idea that zero-sum beliefs are not good nor bad, right? Beliefs are only, can only be accurate or inaccurate. They can't be good or bad. So if you see a zero-sum situation, as zero sum, then you will be very successful in that. But if you see a non-zero sum situation as zero sum, you might actually end up harming others and also harming yourself because you're leaving money on the table. You're you're you might be overlooking such you know possibilities to gain here. So it's all about asking yourself whether your assumptions are correct and about fitting your beliefs as closely as possible to whatever objective truth is out there. As we zoom out even more and transition into talking about you as a researcher and your motivations, 
What's next in this line of research? What are you excited about in your next steps, thinking about zero-sum views of the world? So there's, there's two things that I'm working on. Um, maybe this isn't zooming out enough. Maybe we, I'll zoom out later as, as I rant. Uh, but in other research, and, and other people have also found this, uh, th this idea that zero-sum beliefs reduce our willingness to help others. What I've been looking at uh, in the past year or so is the corollary of that, which is that zero-sum beliefs also reduce our uh, willingness to ask others for help, right? So it's not just that, you know, I see your success is coming at my expense, so I don't help you, but I'm also worried about asking you to help me. Uh, and what I'm finding, and this is related to the project where we just talked about, um, what I'm finding is that this is because I think you will not help me. Now, this is, again, one of those situations where if I view the world as zero-sum and you view the world as zero-sum, then I'm correct. You're not going to help me. So why bother asking? But if I see the world as zero-sum and you don't see the world as zero-sum, then I'm mistaken and I underestimate how likely you are to help me. So I won't even ask you for help. So I'm not going to put myself out there to be proven wrong. So that's one thing that I've been uh, working on. The other thing that I really want to work on is this idea of taking responsibility for your actions and apologizing. And again, with this idea that if I see your success is coming at my expense, then I am not going to apologize for things, even if I should apologize, because I worry that by apologizing, I'm putting myself down and you above me. And I think this is very related, not just to interpersonal relationships, but also to intergroup relations. So some people in society, unfortunately, many people in American society view group relations and race relations as zero sum. If a minority group uh, advances, it comes at the, at the expense of, of uh, majority groups. And I think that belief, which is a very pernicious belief, is what Uh, stops people from not just apologizing for current events, but apologizing for past injustices. As if they think that if, for example, white Americans apologize for uh, the institution of slavery, then somehow they're hurting their status. And I just don't see it like that. So that's another thing that I'm excited about looking at uh, the ideas. Uh, the, the effect of zero-sum beliefs. But honestly, there are so many questions yet to be explored in this world of zero-sum beliefs. I'm really excited that in the past years, more and more people have been uh, studying this. Um, and I feel like I've been privileged to maybe publish earlier than most. So now I get to review a lot of papers and learn a lot about cool stuff that other people are doing, which is honestly way cooler than what I'm doing. Uh, so I kind of get to, so it's not zero-sum, right? I do this work. And instead of fighting other people for pages on journals, I get to learn from other people and hopefully make my work better. So I don't know, it's, it's fun. Well, there's been one theme throughout this entire conversation. You study all kinds of dark things, inequality, <laughs> zero-sum thinking, society falling apart, and yet here you are. Regret. <laughs> Regret, oh God, yeah. yeah. 
And yet here you are uh, smiling and seemingly being happy. Maybe that's just facade, but it seems like you have managed to keep up your optimism. How? So the truth is that you might have just caught me on a good day, right? Uh, there's a lot of reason for pessimism in the world. Um, and sometimes I'm pessimistic. Um, I think part of my optimism, um, it's, you know, my grad school advisor is probably the most optimistic person I've met in academia, sometimes to a fault. Uh, maybe that has rubbed on me when thinking about research and talking about human nature. But honestly, I just think that I have no other choice than try to be optimistic. I'm not naturally optimistic in the critic in the cortical lottery. Uh, I was not a winner. I didn't get that optimistic bias that, that some people have. My view of life is, tends to be more pessimistic by default. But because of that, I have to work hard to make it optimistic and make that choice. But, you know, there's got to move forward. And, you know, pessimism, it's hard to get out of bed, especially when you have two kids, when uh, when you're pessimistic. So. This morning, when my son came and wake me up at 7.15, which I'm grateful for, but didn't happen earlier. And I was like, oh, good, you're here. <laughs> you know, but also I don't want to get out of bed because the world sucks. <laughs> but at least you're here and, and you're amazing. So, you know, told you all rant a little bit. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's beautiful. No, that's great. Some of our listeners might be surprised to hear that you are at a business school. I'm surprised. I'm surprised that I'm in a business school. No, I'm joking. My, my past grad student's personality would have been surprised that I ended up in a business school. Well, yes. Let's travel back in time and talk to your younger self. Uh, what led you to do your work in business school where some of our listeners might be surprised you can even do psychology work like this at business schools these days, which you can. How did that transition happen? So when I was in graduate school, I was convinced that I will not go to a business school because I had misperceptions about what business schools do. I had the perception that business schools are all about training people to maximize the bottom line no matter what. And I thought, I don't want to be a part of that machine. So I went on the job market focused only on psychology, um, got a psychology, assistant professor in psychology uh, job, was happy. I liked my job. I liked teaching psychology students. But I felt that something was missing. And the one thing that was missing for me, right, and this is very individual, is that I do work with the hope of changing the world even by the slightest, right, the tiniest amount. And I felt that while I was very inspired by the 18 and 19-year-old undergraduates that I was teaching, I wanted to work with and teach people that are going to be making these big decisions in the world. And a very, um, a very good friend who's been very instrumental in my decision to move to a business school, you know, she basically opened my eyes to what uh, many business schools, and I can't speak for all of them, but many business schools do, which is focus on businesses as organizations for change. 
You know, we're uh, businesses employ, you know, we spend most of our working hours at a job. Business schools teach people who will, you know, craft those jobs for us. And if we want to make a big change in the world, then we should be engaging with those people. So that was a real eye-opening moment for me. And, you know, I studied things like economic inequality, economic mobility, uh, people's beliefs about why we succeed or fail. Um, and all of those things are both affecting businesses and organizations, but are also affected by them. So I find it, I, I, I'm really um, privileged and um, just happy to be where I ended up being, you know, with great, I was scared about teaching MBA students. I had misperceptions about MBA students. And I have, every time I walk into a classroom, I just am just happy that these are my students. Uh, you know, so it's, it's weird where even people like us that study the inaccuracies of subjective beliefs, you know, are proven once and again, but wait, question your subjective beliefs. What were you founded on? Just that word business? Is that scary? <laughs> Call it something else. Call it management. <laughs> what do you enjoy most about being an academic more generally? And if you had to pick a different career, what would it be? I mostly enjoy having the freedom to think about different ideas, you know, just basically playing around with ideas. You know, I, uh, again, going back to my grad school advisor, Tom Gilovich, he'd be like, why don't we play around with that idea for a little while? It, was, it wasn't, why don't we work on that idea? Or why don't we sit and think seriously about it? It was like, why don't we play around with that idea for a little while? See what happens. So it really is a game. I love that. And I love the writing aspect of our work. I love communicating our work to people in our field, people outside our field, and people outside of academia. I always remind myself that, you know, our ultimate goal here is, is to benefit people outside of the university, not people in the university. Uh, and I love teaching. Yeah, I guess I, I guess you asked me what's the most, but I don't know what's the most thing, the biggest thing that I like here. What would my job be if it weren't this? I think I'd still want to teach you know first of all i think it, i would just you know a cop out would be oh just a professor in sociology uh or a professor in this field right but if i weren't in academia I'd, i think i'd want to teach although i've always had a dream of opening a used bookshop that's also a coffee shop yeah but i don't know if that's ever going to happen well it's not zero sum you can do all of these things and i would be happy to read your papers in your bookshop and drink coffee well Unfortunately, my energy and waking hours are a limited, scarce resource. But um, if if anyone listening wants to put me as a silent partner in a very used bookshop slash coffee shop uh, business, I am happy to make it non-zero sum and uh, get into that venture. You are now living in the U.S. and working at a U.S. institution, but you were born and raised outside the U.S. in Israel, if I am right. Is your work at all influenced by the fact that you are not American, that you have this international perspective on things? The answer must be yes, right? We're social psychologists, right? By training, I'm a social psychologist. And you basically asked me, Did, is my work affected by the environment in which I was 
I lived for 27 years. Yes, of course it has. Uh, in what ways? I'm not exactly sure. I think a lot of things in the U.S. still makes make me raise an eyebrow. Things that people take for granted, and I'm like, wait, why is this happening? Now I don't necessarily have an answer, but at least it they raise my curiosity. So I think that's one way. Uh, definitely, if you've ever seen me at a conference, you know my Israel Israeli nature has led me to feel very comfortable raising my hand and ask millions of questions when maybe I should shut up more. Uh, that is affected, and I don't know if that has impacted my career for the better or for the worse. Uh, but yeah, that has affected how I interact with my colleagues. Um, but more seriously, I, I think things I see in the world and I want to study them. Sometimes it's because I see the difference between my experiences in Israel. And sometimes it's because exactly because I see the similarities. And I realize, oh, there's something of a shared notion here that is that is um, not binded by the culture or geography where people live. Now, of course, I have to say, you know, I've, I've lived in the U.S. for 12 years, but all those 12 years have been in New York and states and New Jersey. Uh, so very limited aspect of the U.S. Uh, when people ask me if I feel like an American, I'm not, I don't have citizenship, but, you know, after this long time, I say I feel like a New Yorker because that's what I know more. Um, maybe one day when I get exposed to more facets of American life, uh, I'll feel more American. For our very last question, I want to ask you to give some uh, nuggets of wisdom <laughs> to our listeners who might just be starting in their career in psychology, seniors, juniors in college, or early grad students. What do you wish you had known as a first-year PhD student, let's say, that your much wiser, much more accomplished self now, you know, kind of advice that you would give your younger version? Uh, there, is a, there is an assumption there that my current self is wiser uh, rather than jaded. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I don't know. And that would be my honest answer. I don't know what I know now. It could have helped me back then. I guess I realize now how important other people are in your life and your career. That's something that I kind of knew, but I didn't, the, 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 the full weight of it didn't dawn on me how much a lot of our professional lives and our personal lives are just based on other people. And how important that is, you know, we get into graduate school by having amazing people vouch for us. We then interact with editors and reviewers, even though if it's anonymous, it's still an interaction with another human being. Then we try to get a job by having other people vouch for us. Then we give a job interview and have all these amazing one-on-one -on -one conversations. Then if we're lucky, and we get a job and then we interact with, you know, our students, our colleagues. It's just so amazing to me. And, and, and the people that are quote unquote in the background as well, you know, how amazing the administrators are. 
and instrumental in making, you know, in, in greasing the wheels of this machine. Uh, so I guess I'd tell all graduate students, you know, just pay attention to who you're around, not just where you are, right? It's not just if you get to the fanciest school or the, the, the best department uh, or in a conference, you go to the most, you know, the, the room with the, with the most networking abilities, right? It's about, are you surrounded by good people? And I think part of it is also, I would implore myself, even though I always try to be an even better person than you are. Like I always ask people, um, and this leads to amazing conversations. You know, if you could take a pill that would make you immensely smarter or immensely kinder and having more empathy, which one would you pick? And there's no right answer. But my hope is that to surround myself with people that always strive to be kinder, right? And, you know, I a lot of times fail in being kind and uh, seeing other people's perspectives, but it's not about succeeding. It's about trying. So I would tell that to new graduate students as much as I told it to myself. And I will tell it to myself, hopefully, you know, I'm listening in the future and like reminded, oh yeah, Pastry told me to be kinder. I should listen to Pastry. Uh, <laughs> what a wonderful, optimistic, non-zero-sum perspective to end on, which your students might call that naive, but I call it refreshing. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for this conversation. Uh, I would say one thing, you know, um, I am naive in a lot of ways but you know i think i would choose this naivete if i if i if you if you could you know pull back the curtain and make me less naive i don't know if i'd want to see you know how the sausages are made so yeah ah that's that's a whole reason for another conversation <laughs> to be continued in the future <laughs> i'm here <laughs> all right thanks for having me eric this is this was fun this time went by really quick Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or if you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics for the podcast. You can reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsypod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.